Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by 90s catchphrases. Oh, no, you didn't. Now, let's kill the lights and turn this mother out. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Book. Let our AI take you beyond search at Blue Book. How's it going, everyone? I am Wes. And I am Todd. And I didn't forget to introduce us this week. Yay. Like I did last week. Yay. We're moving forward. <laughs> Welcome to The Pestle, where we like to do deep dives into films, uh, talk, you know, the fun stuff, what we like, what we don't like, but also look for any kind of filmmaking, whether it's technical or story-wise, uh, just whatever sounds like, I don't know, fun and informative and uh, new and fresh and maybe something you won't read in someone else's blog. Like we try to be our own thing here, whether, whether we, we land the punches or not, that's yeah. up for debate, but we, yeah. we take our shots. Absolutely. And you like to take more of a technical approach, right? And, sure. And like, Oh, they did this. How did they do this? Well, you know, using, they probably sh- up the shutter speed, whatever <laughs> yeah. you talk about. And I just say whether or not I think it looks good. <laughs> right. Like, uh, yeah, when I go see a movie, usually I'm, I'm able to kind of like shut off and we've talked about this a lot Yeah, and, and just kind of take it as it, as it comes. And I think to a point you're able to do that too, but there, you know, whenever you make films like you do, it's, it's much more of a, of a, like you notice a lot more. Yeah. Like when I listen to music, I notice a lot more, you know, oh, there's this kind of, uh, they're using a plate reverb on this. Like most people Holy don't crap. know yeah. about the different kinds of plate reverb, but because I, because that's what I've done for a long time, then it's kind of hard for me to shut my brain off when I'm listening to music. So I totally get it. That's awesome. Yeah. I literally have never heard of a plate reverb. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have. Yeah. You we go. should do like a album at some point as a special one off. Hey, that would be really, that'd fun. be a great idea. I've got just a record too. Nice. Yeah. I'm really excited. Today's show is The Hateful Eight. If you haven't seen it, Tarantino's last film, you know, this is your spoiler warning. We're going to get into a lot of details and, and the plot and the story and along with some of the, not necessarily behind the scenes, but we'll talk a little bit of the camera work, some of the techniques of shooting in such an isolated room that you spend most of your film in. Uh, we'll discuss the format, which is Ultra Panavision 70. And along with some of the writing and storytelling devices, but we'll also have a little special guest uh, segment where I have a conversation with a, a good buddy of mine and he brings in and he weighs in about Tarantino's use of the N word. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that for sure. Because and, a couple of white guys sitting in a room right. talking about this is not really going to do the trick. So it's not, I mean, yeah. we can s- certainly give our opinions. I mean, I think, to some extent, all sure. opinions are valid, but yeah. maybe yeah. not as personal and yeah. lived. Right, exactly. That's <laughs> Which, what I mean. like you were saying, is really valuable. Yeah. So I'm super excited. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do a, a quick little synopsis here of the of the film. Again, if you haven't seen it, please uh, shut this off or pause it or whatever. Go watch it and come back because uh, there's some good stuff in there um, that we don't want to give away. But. Uh, here we go. In the dead of a Wyoming winter, a bounty hunter and his prisoner find shelter in a cabin currently inhabited by a collection of nefarious characters. It's written and directed by the legendary Quentin Tarantino, starring Samuel L. Jackson as Major Warren, Kurt Russell as Ruth, 
Jennifer Jason Lee as Daisy Domergu, Tim Roth as Oswaldo Mowbray, Walton 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 <laughs> Goggins. There's like some weird names here. Walton Goggins as Sheriff Chris Mannix, Bruce Dern as General Smithers, Michael Madsen as Joe Gage, and if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. Channing Tatum as Jody. Oh, mind me. Why we wouldn't just kill all y'all? Cash in. Oh, you can kill us all. But you'll never spend a cent of that bounty money. And you'll never leave this mountain alive. Because when that snow melts, the rest of Jody's gang, all 15 of them that were waiting in Red Rock, are coming here. Now, let, let, let's say you shoot us all. If you really want all that Domingue gang bounty money, you still gotta get all our corpses into Red Rock. And that ain't gonna be so easy. Because I, I doubt you can drive a four-horse team. That wagon out there is too heavy for a two-horse team. So that means you're going to have to lead a string of horses into Red Rock. And with that deep snow after a blizzard, you ain't going to be able to get away with any more than, say, one body per horse. So that's you leading a string of four horses into Red Rock. And with all them horses in that snow, and you all by your lonesome, you're going to be in my pokey. And you're going to run smack dab into the Domingue gang. And again, Grouch, how many is that? Fifteen killers strong. And when those fifteen killers come across you in possession of all our dead bodies, they ain't just going to kill you and that nigger. They're going to go back to Red Rock and kill every son of a bitch in that town. You really the sheriff of Red Rock? You want to save the town? Then shoot that nigger dead! Oh, you believe in Jesus now, huh, bitch? Well, good, because you about to meet him. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, man. Uh, yeah, should we have warned everybody about the N-word usage? Maybe. <laughs> I, yeah, I think uh, that would be a spoiler alert. I don't know. Uh, um, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is a lot of difficult content, but before we dive into that, like, you walked out of this film feeling like, damn. And I did too. I, I, I caught it, you know, in, in theaters during its special, it had a two week, maybe two weeks pre-run when, before they did it on uh, digital and let it be screened that way. They actually tried to promote film by only screening it in ultra Panavision, what have you. Uh, in theaters so you could only watch it a specific way for the first i don't know maybe it was two weeks maybe it was like a week or something yeah but for some amount of time and i remember i walked out uh they even had an intermission halfway oh, through the wow. film right after he tells the uh the crazy story to to bruce dern uh, general smithers oh about his son yeah oh, kills him cut to black <laughs> wow. intermission yeah and we were all like a buzz we we're like oh my god that is an experience of a film. Oh. Wow. And so you walked out, like, I think having that same kind of buzz, like, holy crap. Yeah. So I didn't want to see this movie when it came out because I'm not, I'm not the hugest fan of Westerns. I mean, every time I, I mean, I say that, but then every time I see a Western, I'm like, man, that was really good. Um, so it's not like I don't like them. It's just, I don't go out and seek them. Um, uh, but I should have known this is Quentin Tarantino. It's right. not your typical kind of Western. Um, 
and it's full of just huge names. Uh, so the way that the film opens is absolutely fantastic. You you know, we, we talked about this earlier, just, it opens with these big, huge, these huge, almost panoramic shots of the mountains, right? Really sets the scene where you are. And there's multiple of them. Like, here's one. Here's another one. Mm-hmm. Here's another one. You are surrounded by this. It's snowing. It, it's snowing a lot. Uh, there's, you're just immersed in it. And then there's this shot of a, this Jesus statue on a cross that I think lasts for like five straight minutes. And they shot this on film. So it's like, it's crazy. So anyway, there's this shot of, of the statue and it backs up so slowly and as it's backing up, then in the distance you see something coming and it turns out to be a carriage. And I didn't even realize till the end of that shot that it's in slow motion the whole time. I don't think I realized that. Till yeah, just so, now. <laughs> it was, it actually, so it actually took longer to do it. So yeah, so anyway, it was, it was just such a, a wonderful, like, you have to be patient right at the very beginning. And then throughout the movie, you have to be patient too, because they don't even get to the cabin until, I mean, at, I mean, at least half an hour, maybe 40 minutes into the movie. Uh, and it's a long movie. Yeah. It's like th- over three hours. Uh, I think, uh, I think it is. I'll check the runtime. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not just going to tell everything about the movie, but it was just, the way that it was set up was so awesome. Three hours, seven minutes. Yeah. Yeah. The way it was set, because I started watching it while I was doing a workout on my bike, <laughs> and then I realized, oh, I'm only halfway through it when I was done with my workout. Sweet, I'll go watch it inside. <laughs> uh, it was just, it just set up so well in the beginning and gave me just this a different feeling than any other Quentin Tarantino movie had had done. So then people are going to ask, well, what's your favorite Tarantino movie? And We'll get to that. Yeah, it's hard for me to say yeah. at this point, but it's but what I I told you earlier, I still I still mean, uh, it's wonderful this late in the game to to get a movie from someone like Tarantino that you hold up there with the others that you that you you know if someone were to ask me two weeks ago what they were my three top ones I'd list them off boom 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 yeah. now. This one's in contention, if not definitely 100% up there. That's amazing because for film lovers like us, that's gold to run across. Oh yeah, you know something that you you enjoy that much late uh, late in their career. That yeah, you know what I mean. Like they're still making amazing stuff because this is after 25 years of filmmaking. Yeah, that that is amazing. And I'm I'm like you. I think almost exactly like you. I don't seek out westerns. I didn't grow up on them. I but it, I just happen to like them when I actually do sit down and watch them. The the setting always feels dull and boring. It doesn't feel yeah as exciting or romantic as you know medieval times or obviously futuristic is you know what we really dig. Yeah, but but and, you know when you start talking about historic period pieces. Westerns just sound really sticky and sweaty, and I hear flies buzzing around my head, and it just doesn't sound like a period that I want to hang out in. 
until I actually hang out in it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Unforgiven. You're damn right. I want to watch that. And like, that's a, an amazing film. And this is this is no exception. Like, I had that same feeling like, God, I got to sit through a Western. But because Tarantino made it, I'll do it. And then you sit through it and you're just gripped. <laughs> like, yeah. what is, what, wh- who's going to say what next? Um, and that's kind of the fun thing about this film is it plays with the idea of being a mystery, but it's not. In a true mystery, I think uh, that they give you all the clues. They're right there in front of you. You get to see them. And if you're smart and sharp enough, you put the pieces together at the same time or before you're a hero. And in this they don't. They give you some pieces, but not enough, and certainly not all the context that Major Warren has. Right? He knows Sweet Dave likes this chair. <laughs> like, there's no way we 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 couldn't figure that out. We we could have figured out. And so they do bits and pieces of this. Right? We could have figured out the the stew bit maybe. Like, if she made that stew and she was gone a week ago, that doesn't make sense. That stew shouldn't be around today. And so they they fiddle with the elements of having a mystery. Um, they give you all these various things: the stew, um, coffee, right? The who made the coffee? The jelly bean on the floor, the chair, um, and so they they're constantly layering in some of the all these little elements. But I still don't know how I'd categorize it as uh, maybe more as a thriller, like a psycho not not. A psychological thriller, but like a suspense thriller um, set in the West, maybe. The inspiration to me seems twofold. Reservoir Dogs, this is for his eighth film, and I think at the time he was making it, it was supposed to be like the the grand finale, um, which is impossible. It's like Jay-Z walking away from Ralph. Yeah, You're no. not done. No. We, you'll know when you're done. You'll be yeah. making terrible things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Until that happens, you need to keep pushing. Yeah. <laughs> and you will. It's just in you. And so I see him calling back to his first film, uh, Reservoir Dogs. But then it also feels really inspired by The Thing. Um, there's so many elements. Uh, the blizzard. You have these rope lines. Um, you have a mystery villain. There's just paranoia out the gazoo right from the moment we open up and we meet our first two characters uh there's this already heightened sense of distrust and paranoia and so you have the, the suspicion of the poison like from the moment someone starts drinking something you're already like someone being poisoned like what's happening and Gunplay is obviously always a thing in the in the old west. At any moment, someone could get shot, and so there's just heightened tension. But the uh, the biggest callback I think to the thing is the inclusion of Kurt Russell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so I I feel like there's there's a little bit of a trifecta happening here between the thing, Reservoir Dogs, and That's awesome. Yeah, and. There, I definitely know. caught the Reservoir Dogs part. Right, right. For the, sure. I mean, the fact is, it's all sh- like most of it is shot in that one, yeah. that one room. But I just, I, I think it, it's awesome. It kind of speaks to his growth as a filmmaker that he's more patient to get there now. In Reservoir Dogs, you have one scene, and then you have them, and then you have it in their room, and then, uh, well, you, you know, there's the one scene in the car. Right. Oh, but true. Then the, yeah. But, so like. It, 
bang, 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 and now we're in the uh, the room. We're going to stay here. Right, forever. exactly, exactly. What is it, 15 minutes? Yeah. This movie, it's at least three times that. And, 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 and they pop out. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have that, that little reprieve because it can start to feel a little tedious. And I think mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. He He had the patience to not only build up the suspense of getting there, because anybody who's probably going to watch this movie is already aware of the gist. Right, they know we're going to be locked in a cabin with a bunch of strangers who all want to kill each other, mm. and so knowing the effect that he's going to have with his marketing, I think he built that in. That let's create the suspense of actually arriving there, and then once we're in there, I don't want to exhaust people with this one setting, and so we're going to take this time out to flash back to, or I don't know if that was a. What do you think? That was that when Sam Major. Warren is telling the the story to General Smithers about his son. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was an actual flashback, or do you think that was just the envisioning of General Smithers? When I watched it, I thought it was just the envisioning, but I don't know. It yeah. could have. I think because because I'm I'm sitting here thinking that would be a, a lot of coincidence that he's you know was the one that killed his son and he. It just happened to be locked in there with that with the general, and he's just telling the general that because he's going to kill him because he knows who he who he is and he just hates him because he's a Confederate general, but he wants to upset him yeah a lot before you know so he's telling a lie he's a liar he lies the entire movie he lies about the Lincoln letter I mean he's you know that's he's, true he's a liar he's so a gifted liar a gifted liar and so maybe that's tricking us. Maybe that's the point of, yeah. of showing us that is that he's such a good liar. I mean, we believe the Lincoln letter the yep. whole time till the end. Spoiler, right? Uh, we, you know, so why wouldn't we believe that story that he tells the general? And why wouldn't he try to convince us, like Quentin, try to convince us by giving us a flashback that didn't actually happen? I mean, it could have, right? Right? Sure. Uh, and, but be, it's, it's because a, he knew his son's name. Oh yeah. But mm-hmm. that's a, but that's also the kind of thing that. If he already knows who General Smithers is, then... He, he would know his name of his son. That would make complete sense. Yeah. I mean, they were on the same battlefield. Right. So Right. And then he also has this line about, you can see it right now, can't you? Like, mm-hmm. And so, I think you're oh. absolutely right. Yeah. Huh. I think you're right. That convinced me. I was leaning towards... Real? Yeah. I was on the fence, I guess. I, I mean, was it, still, it still could be. It still totally could be. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think that plays in really well. He's taunting him. Obviously, he's trying to get mm-hmm. a justified kill, like a fair fight, yeah. um, which was obvious the moment he set that gun down. Oh, yeah. And now it's just like, you reach for it so I can kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's a really smart thing by Quentin to use to get out of the room. And then he also, you know, he gets out of the room just for seconds you know like here and there right yeah you know reservoir dogs the only time really that you're out of that room once you get in is like when um, i don't know mr blue or whomever goes out to get the gasoline right out of the trunk and i can't think of any other time yeah which is a pretty standard shot by the way as a as a btw like trunk shots are a very quentin tarantino thing oh yeah for sure and for sure. i don't know if he managed to work one in. I don't think he. No, but there was the. No, I don't know if, if, if the camera was ever in anything. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, the closest we get is looking up through the uh, the basement. Yeah, 
Uh, but he did, he doesn't. took, he took more moments. I feel like to get out of that room, like when, uh, uh the other flashback. Yes. When we're running around the building. Right. There's flashback. Yes, exactly. Um, when he kills the, that last guy and mm. then going to the outhouse, right. Going to the, the horses at the beginning when they first got there, he, they cut away to the horses because yeah. it is tricky whenever you're, you're filming an entire movie in one room, uh, you have to be cognizant of exhaustion of maintaining visual interest. And it's really hard. Like in his case, he tried to separate as much as possible. Some of these areas of the, of the yeah. building yeah. and he would like hang a wall of chains between two. And so he's, trying as much as possible to create visual distinctions within the space so that you can keep exploring it and keep uh, playing with it. He also uh, not only uses a variety of angles in that way, but the uh, the blocking and the staging of the actors would take place within these little sections itself. So, okay, you know, we have Joe Gage in this corner of the room. Let's go walk over there. Now it feels almost like you're in a whole new building, mm-hmm. especially when you start looking at their background because I, a lot of the time, well, maybe not a lot, but a, a chunk of the time he's mixing the lighting to create, to help create some visual uh, contrast and interest so that you could see some of that, that blue outdoor snowy lighting pouring in through the window onto some of the set. And that way, okay, now we have some blue along with this very, very orange, you know, firelight, which is a really low Kelvin. It's like, I don't know, 2200 kelvin it's super orange 2200 <laughs> how much is how much is 300 <laughs> no frame of reference there <laughs> that's a lot of hundreds <laughs> and so if you think about like a uh, kelvin's going on daylight going outside <laughs> going outside and shooting in daylight uh the light is in comparison to indoor lighting like uh your indoor fluorescence or your indoor lamps like we're sitting next to a very orange lamp right now. And if we were to color balance so that this lamp looked white instead of orange and it was daylight outside, the outside daylight would look super blue because we've, we balanced. And so that range of coloring goes from, let's say 2000 Kelvin to like 6,000 Kelvin and 6,000 would probably be more of it. And, Maybe an overcast day. I don't know. I, I get really jacked up with color balancing. It's not my strong suit. Okay. <laughs> but it but it's useful to, to know that as you're creating certain scenes so that you can say, oh, okay, well, if we're going to be in, inside, then maybe it, instead of color balancing at 2200 with firelight, which you don't want to do because suddenly it doesn't look like firelight anymore. It's Everything's color balanced to white. So maybe you set it to like 4,000. And now you still get some of that orange and it still looks a little blue outside the window. You're creating all this interesting visual contrast so that you're trying as much as possible to keep everything popping and and not boring as you're moving through all these scenes and sections. And then he's changing your eye line constantly. He's exploring these low angles. So we're shooting up, which does a couple of things. One it's changing the the position of power, right? If you're shooting someone from a low angle, they're really tall in the frame. It's like they're towering over you. And, and that's a very powerful position. But it's also helpful visually because we can now explore some of the ceiling. We get more visual context of what's happening. And it's just different. Instead of looking at these walls in the back, 
we get to see oh the decorations we got barrels and crap hanging off the 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 rafters or whatever um and then that reverse shot and they do this a lot especially setting up the uh the characters initially because right now as far as we're concerned uh what's his name kurt russell ruth Mm -hmm. john ruth Mm -hmm. um yeah he right is he's the big man on campus him and Sam Jackson. And so they're all shot from, you know, positions of power. And every time they're talking to someone, they're looking down on them. So someone's seated in their chair. Suddenly they look powerless and you're establishing who the man is. And so they're doing a lot of really smart things, not only with maintaining visual interest, but establishing character itself uh, through doing something really hard, which is shooting in one tiny room for it's still what over two hours that you're spending yeah. in this room, yeah, which is a long freaking time. I think a better movie that a movie that does it even better than this uh, is Compliance. I don't know if I haven't seen it. Really, I mean, it's a small budget film and it takes place largely in like a fast food restaurant's manager's office, which is like this cubby hole of a thing. Oh wow! And they're just brilliant in their way of exploring that space and keeping it visually interesting. They don't have to do it for three hours. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, right. but they do it for an hour and a half and it's very well done. Wow. I'm and gonna if I was going to study, you know, for trying to create something like that, I would be studying this movie. There's another Richard Linkletter film. I always forget the name of it. It's got Uma Thurman, who's also a very Quentin Tarantino yep. person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Sunset Ethan, Limited. Ethan Coe. Yeah. Ethan Hawke. And Sunset Limited is a great one, too. Yeah. Um, and so there's a great smattering of, of films that I would definitely be re- researching and like, okay, what can I pull from yeah. the, the visual part of exploring a tiny space so that your audience doesn't feel exhausted? Because if you're smart about it, too, I think you can begin to assign certain spaces for certain thematic things. And I don't know that they're doing it in Hateful Eight, but... I can imagine that little campfire section being very racially uh, profound. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With General Smithers over there and his racist ass. Um, <laughs> but I think what makes it even harder for this film is the way they shot it, which is in Ultra Panavision 70. Now you're you're shooting in a tiny room in this case, and you're capturing way more on the sides. You're capturing a bigger landscape, and so you're much more aware of your surroundings. So you have to be very aware of that when you're constructing your actual building, as you're planning your shot list and working through your script. This is meticulous stuff, and especially when you get to some of these shots because, it, it, I mean, he's doing so many crazy technical things in such a confined space that takes a lot of production planning and hard work. Because at certain points, he does an extra level of difficulty with what's called a a split focus diopter. It's this thing, this extra thing you're attaching on the front of your lens. um, At least I'm pretty sure it's on the front of the lens that splits the screen in two so that if you have one guy on your left who's a foot away from the, the, the lens, then you have another guy on the right side of the screen and he's like, 10 feet away from the lens, you can't get them both in focus, right? You can either be focused on if you're, if you have a shallow depth of field where maybe you only have, you know, six inches that are actually in focus, everything else is blurred out. Well, 
if you want both of those guys, the guy that's a foot away and the guy that's 10 feet away to be in focus, you attach this split focus diopter that allows you to get to pull focus at two different distances. And this is all done in camera. This isn't something you do in post. And it looks really crazy. That's Yeah, I remember that scene. That yeah. Shot. And, yeah. They, and as I was watching it with that in mind, I was like, oh, he's got like several of these shots. There's another shot, and I'll, I'll post some screen captures on the, uh, on the PestlePodcast.com so that you can actually take a look at what we're talking about specifically. Um, because there's a scene towards the end, right, where he's on the bed, Samuel L. Jackson's on the bed, and uh, mm-hmm. the sheriff, Mannix, scoots his chair over closer to uh, Domergu, and suddenly, but we still have both of these guys in focus, and it looks weird because behind the sheriff, everything's out of focus, but just to his right, everything's back in focus. Mm-hmm. And it just creates, I think, tension in the audience because nor- the normal use of focus and having a shallow depth of field is to tell the audience what to look at. And if you have two things that to look at, it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And so, and so you have this feeling of what should I be looking at and what's going to happen right now? Um, because at that specific moment, right, you have – uh, the betrayal happening. Like he thought the sheriff was on his side. Uh, the major did. And now he's just feeling like vulnerable, like, Oh crap, this guy, he's out of my reach. He could kill me. Uh, or we could battle and I get hurt, whatever. Like there's, there's certain tension that you can create that way. And then I think some of the time he's also doing it to communicate in just a visually interesting way. Cause there's another shot early on whenever he hands him his gun after he lines them all up against the wall, and he's like, Sheriff, you come over here with me, or Mannix. I don't think he believes he's a sheriff. <laughs> but he's like, you're with me. Take my gun, point it at them, and then the major goes and sits at the table and starts having this conversation, and we do this wide shot where now the sheriff is on the left and uh, yeah. Mannix is on the right. And so even on a visual language standpoint, later in the film, they reverse those roles because right now in this the very first setup, the power is on the left, and he his gun power is on the right. This guy is with me. I'm controlling him. And then those roles are reversed later. He's he's basically being held captive to you know some extent. But he they use that split focus diopter again, and the gun is perfectly in focus, but just the barrel of the gun. Like everything else behind him is just a little out of focus, and then on the left side of the screen. Uh, the majors in focus. And so they're doing a That's lot awesome. of really Dude. cool stuff, man, because this is also shot entirely on 70 millimeter film, mm. which helps with the resolution. Cause if you're going to do all of this stuff on 35 millimeter, you're really stretching the limits of the resolution and the quality you're going to get out of that. And so there's just a insane amount. And you, then you throw on the stuff that you were talking about with those really long cuts, like especially that, opening scene with the cross dramatically. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, slow motion. So, the- so, so and I was thinking like, why do that in slow motion? You know, like why not do it regular speed? And w- the only thing it could come up with was to take, cause it's, it's a very still movement, like more still than, than you would normally think even from, even in today's cranes, like it's mm. uh, still really, really stable to stabilize it. Yep. You know, that was, that would be my guess. Yeah. Too. 
uh, and you don't really, it, you just can't tell that it's slow motion because there's nothing moving, nothing happening. And even the, when you see the 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 thing coming, uh, you don't know that it's a chariot necessarily. But um, when you see it coming, you can't tell that it's slow motion until it starts turning, and then you can and then you can tell you're like, oh, that whole thing was in slow motion. I didn't even know. But I think it was just a stabilizing thing. Probably. I think so too because to your point, whenever you're doing a, a crane shot like that. There's just all these little imperfections Yeah. that if you stretch out over four times as long, suddenly they smooth out and it doesn't look like a bump. It doesn't look like a jittery, you know, operator. Yeah. It looks like just a part of this Gosh. fluid, beautiful, flowing movement. How much film did yeah. that one shot use? Jeez. Because <laughs> you know they didn't just do one take. <laughs> oh, no. No. But even if, even if they did, still, like, oh, so much. But it's so worth it. it. For whatever reason, that shot might be my favorite Quentin Tarantino shot. And all, maybe only because I can't remember all of them. Yeah. Because um, there's so many great ones. And if I went back through all his whole catalog, I might find something that's better. Maybe. But, it's I mean, we watched beautiful. this movie, you know, a week ago, maybe a little bit more. And it has stuck with me the whole time, this whole time. I like anytime we've talked about hateful eight, I'm like, Oh man, that shot. Oh, it's so good. And there's, there's other like, you know, really crazy shots that jump out at me too, that I, that I think about. But that one, for whatever reason, I think it was just, there's just like this calmness and, and because I hadn't seen the film before I was, I just kept thinking, okay, now it's going to cut away. Now it's going to cut away. Now it's going to cut away. Now it's going to cut. And it just never did. Right, because I'm so used to Quentin Tarantino movies just getting into it, and this one said, "Nope, you're gonna wait." <laughs> From the very beginning, so cool. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm just in my head. I'm trying to think back through his films and sh- stuff that I've loved, and hmm. even uh, *Inglorious Bastards* is has my favorite opening and intro. Or, or a scene, I think, of any Tarantino film, but I don't think anything in that scene was more beautiful than that shot. Yeah, definitely doesn't stick with me nearly as as well. That's a really good call. So, what? I always have really, I don't know, apprehensive feelings about uh, when a film or show use, uses the N word, and. Of course. One of my greatest friends in the world, uh, my buddy Shamari, is uh, a black guy. He's our age. Um, and I called him or te- I sent him a text like two hours ago. And I was like, dude, you want to do the you want to do on, <laughs> a quick interview on the pestle? Um, we're doing this thing on Tarantino's Hateful Eight. Uh, so this is super spur in the moment. But I knew this dude's got. Uh, he's got his business together. We can have like, like you and I can, like we can have at any drop of the hat, like a really intellectual conversation that can go any number of directions and he can pull like facts and stats right at the drop of the hat. So I was like, man, who do I know that could really bring something on really short notice? I'm like, that's not even a question. Yeah. Um, and especially because I know he's always got thoughts and opinions on any random given subject. Um, and so I I called him and we talked for uh, five or six minutes. And I 
I wanted to have him on the show like live so that you and I could both talk to him, but he just wasn't sure that he would still be awake at this point because he gets up. He he's the early bird that gets the worm. Yeah, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just peck at the dirt. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Hoping that uh, the early birds left something behind. Yes, that is one hundred percent my my hope. So and and I so I haven't heard this. You have not heard this, and that's that's the point. That's this whole setup because we're gonna let the interview play out for everybody to listen to as well as Todd Mm -hmm. and then Todd and I will discuss it and give our white man's feedback (laughs) (laughs) because it's way more valuable grain of salt right (laughs) Right. please pay more attention to Shamari than you do to us man I appreciate you doing this I I know it can be no problem I I just hope you don't uh, expect any expert you know cinematic analysis nah heck nah (laughs) like I'm just you bring, I feel like, everything that's perfect for this conversation, you know? Um, okay. One, you're white, so that really helps, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Always a plus. <laughs> Always a plus. So you're a really big Tarantino fan, right? I would say so. I would say. <laughs> did you like The Hateful Eight? I did like The Hateful Eight. Uh, I did like it for a few reasons. Um one, I, I really like Westerns. I grew up listening to a lot of, watching a lot of Westerns. Um, and <laughs> I like any, I'm a sucker for any movie where you have to like assemble a pop. Right. So that was like a big part of the movie is like them bringing all these people together. Yeah. Um, like True Grit. I think they did that. Um, it's a Wizard of Oz that happened. So <laughs> <laughs> all things I like. A big piece of this film, being in a Western, uh, does something that you don't see or that you're referring to growing up on. They didn't do, right? They didn't revolve it as much around the Civil War in such a racial capacity, right? They're they're really right. getting after Samuel was, L. Jackson. Like, most Westerns are like, it's ignored. Right. Almost. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like a completely missing element. Um, <laughs> and so with that, Tarantino has just no <laughs> reservations about... Using the N word. Right. Uh, but does he ever? No, that's true. I mean, there's been plenty of other films where yeah. He, yeah, he gets in it. You know, it's it's one of those things. So I, I've, I've it, it's definitely something that has concerned me. And so, of course, you know, you start reading about it and, and looking up and trying to understand, like, his point of view and rationale. Uh, and I don't necessarily agree I don't want to say necessarily. I don't agree with his rationale. So one thing I read, the reason why he uses it so much is because he thinks that it's going to somehow lessen the power by him continuing to use that. Hmm. And I've heard that argument a lot. I don't, I don't agree with it, but, and maybe because I'm such a huge fan of him, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that it's coming from a good place, a, a pure place. Um, so to be honest with you, it's one of those things where I kind of just brush to the side because I'm such a fan of the 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 movies and maybe this is not just not a great thing to say. I just feel like I don't dwell on it too much. I I did that small little bit of research and I was like, okay, I can kind of see where he's coming from, even though I don't agree. And then, and so you're just believing the best about him and like trying to enjoy the rest of the movie without dwelling on. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So would that said, I mean, would you still prefer it if he didn't (laughs) use it? So, I think 
okay, in normal circumstances, I think if it's not driving the story, if it's not of importance to the story, why, why are you doing it, right? But then you look at Tarantino, it's like everything's extra. The dialogue is so extra. The, you know, the violence, the blood, the gore is extra. So this is like kind of another part of that. That's actually, this is actually the most I've ever thought about this <laughs> and talking to you now. <laughs> um, but I, you know, right or wrong, I think you just, I kind of, because it's him, I kind of give it a pass. Um, and maybe it's also his relationships with people like Samuel L. Jackson, again, right or wrong, that might play into, whether it's subconsciously or not, that might play into how I am able to kind of look past it. Hmm. Right, because he's in his own Tarantino way, he's trying to involve the people that would be affected by it and who are it's not like Samuel L. Jackson is just some bum off the street who's looking right. for any role. That's a respectable right. and intelligent black mega man, right? He's he's absolutely he's a titan in the industry. Um, right. That's interesting. Um any Final thoughts as you're chewing on it. I mean, I really like your point. Like he is extra. Everything he does is hyped up to an 11. Um, right. And so that definitely falls in line with him just trying to push boundaries and push buttons and make his point in all casts with exclamation points. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, this is the <laughs> this is hands down the most I've thought about this. Uh, so I appreciate that. It's it's good thing about these things. I think. Agreed. I do want you to rank your your Tarantino films. Like, give me your your favorite three, because that's what we do. We rank everything. Ooh, that's true. All right, I'll give it on the show. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I need a minute. <laughs> All right, man, I appreciate you jumping in and such nope. quick notice. You literally had like 30 seconds to, to think of how you really feel. Even though I know you and knowing you, this is – I'm not surprised at all that you already did your research. Like, that's – exactly why i wanted to talk to you because right you're a very well thought out human being and got all the respect in the world so appreciate i appreciate that, it man. appreciate it absolutely yeah i hope i don't get killed <laughs> <laughs> who's that guy on there dismissing tarantino in his shenanigans <laughs> and so he felt really conflicted you know he was a little bit on the fence um yeah, what's do you have any take or any strong opinion? Uh yeah, I thought it was really well thought out. I think it the biggest thing I took away from it was well, two two big things really. Um one was um him talking him saying that um every everything that Tarantino does is extra. And in some ways it's, it's shock and awe. In other ways it's total immersion. In other ways it's just, you know, a little bit, it's just like what would normally happen? Okay. Let's quadruple that. Hmm. You know, the blood splatter, the explosion of heads when they get shot, like, you know, like those kinds of things. The, the language in some cases, in this case. Um, so yeah, that was very interesting and, and uh, uh, and eye-opening, I think. But also, um, <laughs> his just like uh, him saying, "I really like Tarantino, so it didn't really bother me, or I didn't think about it that much." I mean, that 
that says a lot about Tarantino as as a a filmmaker, right? The fact that he can have the respect of someone like Shamari um, enough to use that word a hundred, two hundred times in a film, uh, and Shamari not really thinking about it that much. Um, and we talked a little bit uh, before this or whatever, but it, if I would have been on the call with him, I would want to ask, well, when you were watching the film, did you have a any kind of like visceral or whether visceral or not, I don't know, any kind of reaction when that word was said? Yeah, do you flinch? Especially by a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Samuel L. Jackson says it, that might be one thing, but any of the other white people... Well, all, any of the other people, pretty much, um, saying it, did that give you kind of an, an internal reaction? You know, because as a white man, it gives me a reaction, and which I know is a very different reaction than what someone like Shamari might have. But um, it just makes me think, like, okay, what is what is Tarantino doing right in the in in what he's doing that allows someone like Shamari to watch his film and not have a, an, an anger or a, you know, not really even think about it that much. Yeah. I mean, because you could easily make the case that watching that as a black person, it would be hard to focus on the story. Like how can I yeah. even yeah. listen to what everyone else is saying when they keep uh, using this yeah. over and over and over and over again? And I get to some extent it makes sense in this setting and in this world and in the discussion of Abraham Lincoln himself. Like this is all a part of the the story in this world that, that they're creating. And I think there's probably, you know, some level of symbolism or metaphor that's happening because effectively what's happened in this film is it's a paralleling what happened with the emancipation because right. You have Lincoln who signs into law, this document that grants freedom. Right. And then in this film, you have a guy who's using Lincoln's letter, quote unquote, as a form of his own freedom and to move about without as much scrutiny and with more acceptance by the word of Lincoln. And so there's, there's very, a very strong parallel that's, that's happening um, and a very direct metaphor for the emancipation itself, you know, being, being a thing that is used to give someone their freedom in multiple ways. Mm. Um, even though he had to create a lie in order to live out a truth. Yeah. So what do you think then about what, the reason Quentin Tarantino's reason, what Shamari said was his reason for using it. What do you, Oh yeah. I think that's garbage. Me too. Yeah. I think you, I saw a really great video earlier today. I'll actually put it in the, uh, the show notes. Uh, please go check it out. Go watch this because I'm just not going to do it justice. Right. But this, uh, interview with Tanisi Coates, um, who's an amazing author. I've got, one of his books on my dresser that's in my lineup to read this year. And he's in this auditorium on college on a college campus. And someone asked him a question. That's exactly that. Like, how do you feel about rappers using the N word and 
people, white people wanting to use it to sing along with. And he was like, well, language is a contextual thing. Language isn't this, this hard iron thing that can go anywhere and do everything. It's, it's very contextual. If, uh, and he, he starts bringing out examples that to, to help illustrate it. If, if me and my wife, you know, are together and she calls me honey, that that's okay. Mm -hmm. That that's, this is my wife. This is our relationship towards one another. And within this relationship, certain things go that don't go outside of this relationship. And he used the example of if me and my wife are walking outside and this woman walks by, she calls me honey. That's probably not going to go over as well. That's unacceptable. Yeah. Not only to my wife, but to me, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a committed man and it, yeah, our relationship isn't there. And so it doesn't just apply in that way. I mean, there's, I think we're all familiar with the idea of sibling rivalry and what I do to my brother. Oh yeah. You can't do to my brother. Yeah. I'm the only one that picks on my brother. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And so he, he uses several other examples to help illustrate his point. But I think that idea stands that, that it's that way for a reason because it is a sensitive bit of language and it's got a very awful history. And just because, you know, a handful of black people don't mind it when white people say it, like maybe Jay-Z doesn't care if white people say it, right? You have Gwyneth Paltrow who's, who says it at his concert and he's, he's all good. It doesn't bother him. Well, that, I guess that's fine because that's their relationship, but she probably shouldn't go walking around and saying it publicly. Yeah. I mean, I still advise her to not say it privately, but you know, that's not my relationship. I'm not invested in that. That has nothing to do with Wes. And so I, I think that's the best sentiment of all is don't go treading into someone else's relationship haphazardly just because you feel a certain way and you think you've got some kind of stupid logic on your side, like as logical as you might want to want to place it, it's still missing a key element, which is the human element and humans are sensitive beings that have a whole history and past of their own that you need to take into account whenever you start addressing someone at any time, particularly with something that you know is a freaking fire starter. So Yeah, I think I think it's in general irresponsible of him to be doing it. I don't think he should be doing it, and I don't know that it's having the effect that he desires. I don't I don't think anesthesia should be used at all times. Yeah. And right. anesthetics are right for surgery, not for yeah. everyday life. So but what about a movie like this where it's set in you know, in the old western times and that is a word that was used on, you know, on the daily by every white person. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's as effective as something like American history X. Like, mm-hmm. I think that is a far more potent version of it, but okay. I think to Shamari's point, it fits into not only Tarantino's world, which has much less of an impact on my view of it than it does, you know, for him maybe, but it makes sense in the context of the world. Like you're talking about like this civil civil war. And I think Tarantino in his own way, in his own Tarantino way is making a point about that era and the people of that era and 
most specifically what it's like to walk around as Major Warren. Yeah, exactly. If you can watch that, and just because he's not crying on the inside or on the outside doesn't mean he's not hurt and he's not affected by it. You can't watch someone's exterior and expect to know how they feel. So, I yeah, I I think I pretty much agree with that. But I there is a feeling of if they don't if these people don't use that word, I don't have my like me as a watcher of it. I don't right. have as visceral reaction yeah. to that character. That guy as mm. you like the the general right uses that i mean that's a perfect example of of it being used in a way that i feel feel like shamari would would say yeah i mean it needs to be used by that guy right i want to hate that guy and if he doesn't use that word i don't necessarily i don't know that i would necessarily hate him as much as i do yeah and be happy when he gets when he gets his come up and you know uh, as I did, as I was. Absolutely. And I just, there are things that I like about it yeah. from not only that standpoint, which is a hundred percent spot on, but I also like it because it's, I, I think it's maybe in some ways doing the opposite of what Tarantino's wanting, which is it's showing too that the people who are on his side use it. How damning is that? Because the people in modern day America are thinking it even mm. though they say they're on the side of their black friend. Yeah. One of my best friends is black. You know, is one of the common refrains that oh, right, yeah. has become a punchline today, but it's true. The very people who claim to not be racist are <laughs> like, I'm trying yeah, to think yeah, of yeah. a way to the soft pedal. It. There's yeah. really no, there's no way. And it just, people think that racism can only come in the form of a burning cross and chasing, you know, a person out of town or, or lynching them on a tree. And it's, that's the extreme version. I'll grant you, but it's not the only version and it's right. not the most common version that we run into. And the problem in today's PC culture is that we've effectively PC'd our way out of more easily spotting racists. It's very, it's very like guerrilla style, guerrilla yeah. warfare style racism yeah. uh, nowadays. You don't like, you don't spot it as easy. It's kind of like under the radar. And, and so in this world, right, we get to see that all these people are racist, even the people who are, who are defending him in whatever stupid yeah. way that they're claiming to. Right. Right. And so I think that's, there's a lot of really smart ways intentional or not that it's being used. So it was interesting. The, the sheriff, who was probably other than a general, the most racist guy in the entire entire room took his side, took Samuel Jackson's side at the end and defended him because at the end of the day, and we, we touch on this in V for Vendetta, all that stuff goes away the moment they come for you. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. They, she was going to let him die without a second thought. And he's mm-hmm. like, I can't be on your side. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It doesn't matter if we say, have the same ideology. Yeah. <laughs> it affects that. him. Yep. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's a personal thing. But yeah, I, I agree that it, that um, uh, Tarantino's like reasoning for using mm-hmm. if that's his reason for using it, it's a it's a bullshit reason for using it. <laughs> it I I think that you know there there's this whole uh, Confederate flag movement 
right. you know, where like you have these, these people like, you know, carrying the Confederate flag around and everything, which is total garbage. Uh, it belongs in, I don't think we should forget about it. It right. belongs in museums sure. and, and, and in textbooks and stuff, not on the back of your, of your truck window, not someplace that can be displayed as I am, I am for the Confederacy. Like, what does that mean? Like you're basically saying I'm a racist or, you know, uh, so your great, great grandfather fought in the Confederate army. That doesn't mean that you have to, you know, you have to display the, f- the flag, which stand, which is openly stands for slavery, pro slavery. Like, that's that's what it is. If unless you are, you know, a member of the KKK and you are just out there and don't care who knows that you don't like people that are not of European descent, you should take the flag that flag down. This is, I feel like that word kind of should be in the same vein. It is literally the worst word. There is no other word in in any language that has more power than this word. Um, and that's coming from a white guy, uh, because like, I, I'm one of those people, I don't even, I don't ever even think the word, like it yeah. is, it is as far away from my lips as any, as any thought or any word could possibly be. And I want to keep it there. So putting it in my brain all the time, you know, hearing it in music or watching it in films gives me a very uncomfortable feeling all the time. And so that's why I would have liked to have asked Jamari, like if he had any uncomfortable feelings, um, you know, and I'm sure he probably did at some point. I mean, yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine too. Um, knowing him, he just probably rolls his eyes every single time. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's America. Oh, Quentin. (laughs) Oh, QT. (laughs) Yeah. So, Interesting conversation, though. It really is, yeah. yeah. And certainly, probably not the last time we'll have it. I think, too, I mean, I don't disagree with what you said. I think there is an extra layer on it that gets lost because you have younger generations who look at that rebel flag, uh, the Confederate flag, as a southern yeah, signal. Like, they don't necessarily think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for, you know, the confederacy per se they just think i'm proud of being from the south and this yeah is, well you need to get educated is exactly. what i would say yeah i would agree 100%. especially today yeah. like that is there's no excuse yeah. if you get pulled over for speeding and like if the if the speed limit changes all of a sudden you get pulled over and you claim ignorance that you didn't know the cop is going to say, sorry, now you do. Here's your ticket. Have a good day. It's the same thing. You don't fly a flag like that without lo- knowing what it stands for. I mean, don't be an idiot, you yeah. know? Like, if you, if you want to fly that, it you totally can. It You know, you're a human being, a citizen of this country. However, if there are repercussions, sorry, you brought it on yourself, buddy, you know? Can't say it better. <laughs> <laughs> I start, I start to get like wound up when I you know, start talking about I know, this, like vibrating. And I'm, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that we're, we're having this conversation. I mean, we're two white guys sitting yeah. across from each other talking about the N word and, and Confederate flags and, and all this stuff. And I think that we're, you know, 
we're very passionate people when it comes to equality and in, in, on, on all, on all sides and all sexes and everything, sexual preferences and everything. Uh, and, and to have this come, I've never even had this conversation outside of being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm sitting here being recorded, That's true. having this conversation with you. Voicing about, opinions you've voicing never got to of, bounce around. Oh yeah, yeah. That like, you know, if we were to have, if I, if someone else outside of here were to ask me these questions, I'd feel a little bit like right. careful yeah. about what I'm saying. And I'm not really not as guarded. I'm not, yeah. I'm not guarded right now because I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why not? Um, but I, I think also hearing that your conversation with Shamari kind of like stirred some stuff with me because just hearing a, a, a black man say that, that it didn't really affect him. It kind of like, yeah, makes me feel like I'm like, what, really? And you know, it's funny, like, and he to- it totally is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's funny because here's the other the other thing is, like I said, I gave him like 30 seconds notice. Yeah, so, and he's gonna be chewing on this for the next, you know, five years. Yeah, so he, <laughs> yeah, so he might be like kicking himself, like, no, nah, it was my chance. To yeah, say I hate uh, that. I want to revise my statements. Well, please. Shamari, come on our show the next time we do some a racist film. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do American History X. And yeah, we'll do Birth on. of a Nation. Oh, the geez. original. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no. Or 13th. Right. Yeah. Yes. That would be freaking perfect. Yeah. So to his question, what are your top three Quentin Tarantino films? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I think uh, it would be Reservoir Dogs. It would be Inglorious Bastards. And it would be Hateful Eight. Nice. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. I, I don't know which one I would put first. Um you know, I put Hateful Eight up there when we were talking because probably it's just freshest in my brain. Mm-hmm. But maybe after a few years, it might not stay up there like Reservoir Dogs has. Sure. You know, Reservoir Dogs, like I I watched it again um, a few months ago when I was in Colorado with my family. And I watched the whole thing. I was just going to watch maybe the first 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm watching this whole thing. And it was so good. The dialogue is amazing. The The use of space is incredible. The pacing is awesome. It, it, it's just such a great film. Um, and uh, I, but I feel like, I don't know. I hope this one holds up, but I'm, I'm keeping it up there. I yeah. love it. And yours? So mine in order and uh, pole position is Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. followed by Pulp Fiction followed by reservoir dogs nice yeah i liked this i mean i i really loved hateful eight but i don't know i don't know why it couldn't quite sneak past uh reservoir dogs for me yeah um so you hold pulp fiction above reservoir dogs i well don't make me ask don't let's not no, dive I'm, in because I'm, it's gonna I'm shake me into up. this man i'm diving in <laughs> i think so yeah <laughs> You're gonna have. You're just gonna have to deal with it for the next five years. <laughs> I mean, it's a gr- hey. Look, Pulp Fiction is amazing. Yeah, you you really can't pick wrong unless you pick Jackie Brown. I just don't like Jackie Brown. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I I think that's I think that's my final okay. answer. We can laminate it. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. That's good until All this right. next one comes hey, out. Hey man, Pulp Fiction. There's no, there's no way yeah, around no it. That's a great that. film. I just, the out of, out of, you know, well, yeah. can't talk about it too much. True. 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 Spoiler. Awesome. So any final comments on, uh, no, I, I really, I really liked it. I liked, I thought he had some of the, the most, uh, um, mature camera work that he's ever had in this film. And I, to your point earlier, I think he needed to because shooting that wide angle with anamorphic and, and just, um, and also it, you know, shooting in a room like that, that that small, because you think about reservoir dogs, that's a, that was a big mm-hmm. warehouse that they yeah. shot in. He could have five, six crew in the room and shoot a couple of angles at the same time in this room. I mean, if you're shooting that wide, you have to, yeah, like you said, you have to block them right. You have to, you know, have everything where it needs to be. But the whole room needs to be that way because then you're going to need to turn around really quick and shoot somebody else. And so if you have all this stuff that's set up behind you, you're going to have to reset and everything. How many crew do you have? You know, you have, you got to have. Well, so they filmed all the exteriors in Colorado. Yeah. And all the interiors in Hollywood. Okay. <laughs> I'm rubbing off on you. I'm coughing a lot. <laughs> and I think what the advantage of shooting in a studio, because that's basically what they did, they they built the the set in a studio, is you can also build in a way to fly out the walls. You can build in uh, a way to tear your set apart so that if you need to get a certain angle. Um, I worked on Friday the 13th as an, as a stand-in for Jason Voorhees, like the remake they made back in whatever, 2007, 2008. And that was one of the things that kind of blew my mind was we would set up for like a, a murder scene and they're wanting to get a shot that they just physically couldn't get because they needed to be behind the wall filming something, you know, on the other side of the wall. And so they're like, hey, how long is it going to take to remove that wall? And they're like, uh, 10 minutes. Okay, fly that wall out and we're going to pr- set up over there. Get all the plastic ready. There's going to be a big blood splatter. <laughs> and so... There's these advantages, and that's why you do it in a in a studio, is to control not only the lighting, but uh, so that you can do like you're saying, which is bring in this big gear and have all these crew members right there ready to go. Mm. Um, and so I suspect they probably did some element of that. I mean, there's probably a lot that they couldn't do, yeah. but I think it makes sense to to take advantage of that as well. But cool. Yeah, the other you know what shot I really second to that opening but the other shot that i really loved was the 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 segment we played earlier at the at the intro um that scene where and we haven't even talked about the acting damn Mm, so we're just gonna end up (laughs) cutting this one short but yeah jennifer jason lee i think is the best actor in this whole film like her performance is i think absolutely incredible and that scene is so good because it's like they're exploring the entire 180 degree rule. They start off on one side of her and they slowly do like a circle, circular dolly move around her until as she's doing this, this uncut monologue. And then just as we get to the other side of her, we get Joe Gage comes into frame. He's out of focus, but he's in the background to deliver his line because that's where she gets to that point of how many how many gang members you say are back in town? 15. And then we start dialing right back around. So it's timed 
meticulously and she's in perfect, well, almost perfect focus the entire shot. So like everyone is firing on all cylinders, your focus puller, your, your dolly guy, your dolly grip. And she's just delivering a lights out performance. That's just full of character. Um, yeah, that yeah, shot so and her performance is just like, it wowed the hell out of me for sure. Yeah. The whole time, like this, this chick is crazy. She is oh my God. Doing it. Just awesome. And she's also really good. And she, uh, she's in a film recently, good time. Hmm. And I think really performances are only the only real reason to watch that movie because it's just an okay movie, hmm. but there's a lot of wonderful performances. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I'm done. I've, okay. Could easily <laughs> we could keep talking so much about this. Film. I know, right? What's your uh, recommendation for the week? Oh, uh, yes, I'm going to recommend my wife's favorite movie. Ooh, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm recommending The Thing, John Carpenter's The ah, Thing. Ah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, to stick with this whole idea of Kurt Russell and I need to rewatch that in a boxed up location. Like, yeah. I, that's my favorite horror movie. I was actually going to go check it out uh, at the draft house. They were showing it in 70 millimeters um, at the Alamo draft house. But and why didn't you? Because the freaking Astros were busy the Astros warning were the World Series. Winning the World Series. What? Boom. And Ghost Rose. while we're on that topic, did you see the classy move that uh, L.A. did? No, what? The Dodgers took out a full page ad in the Houston Chronicle to congratulate them. Are you kidding? How absolutely classy that's amazing wow yeah i've never heard of any of that anything like that happening especially after our pitcher hit three of their batters in the last game (laughs) he just wounded all your team seriously oh gosh four four was it four four batters maybe he hit the same guy twice though Oh, he definitely he hit the same guy twice. <laughs> Turner. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the beard guy. Yeah. The, the guy from Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> the wildling. <laughs> yes, the wildling from Game of Thrones who plays third base for the Dodgers. Yeah. Oh, I'll put a link wow. to that that story on, on the pestle. Awesome. And good wreck. I like it. Awesome. I need to go back and watch that again. So we will end with a quote. Yeah. All right. Then this one's from Quentin Tarantino. When people ask me if I went to film school, I tell them, no. I went to films. I love that. Then you, sir, are the most learned person I know. <laughs> and I've never even touched a film school. Yeah. Um, which maybe some of you out there are saying, you should, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's... Now you built one. That's true. Yeah. Nah, fair enough. Mm. I think it's so true, though. Like, everything, fine. There's technical things that you can learn that you need to figure out that film school will absolutely help you with. But at the end of the day, it's not going to help you figure out what's a better story and what's a better way to, to shoot that story. Because the nice thing about a movie is you're seeing the end product after they've done all the failures. Like, yeah, maybe it's better to experience those failures yourself. But how cool is it to just see here's all the things that work? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Use that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Study that. Let's you know imitate it. One of the things whenever I used to dabble in music, if I wanted to create a beat, I would learn, I would teach myself by creating existing beats. Mm-hmm. And now I can see everything or at least a chunk of what went into any one specific beat. That's a really great way to learn filmmaking is go reconstruct a scene mm-hmm. and learn, oh, they took 10 setups 
to make this scene. Holy crap. Yeah. I thought it was just, you know, two or three takes. You don't realize how much goes into a scene until you break it down. And even if you don't recreate it, like get there with sit there with a pen and pencil and say, okay, here's one angle. Here's two angles. Here's three angles. Here's a dolly move in to enunciate this profound moment that this character is having. Like if you start to draw those things up, you're learning. You're in film school. Yeah. By watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Netflix is the school, only film school you need. School of hard knocks. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I totally agree. I, I think that that um, I, I and this is not a a you know uh, a knock against school. No. Um, or against film school or Two. music school. All the guys that I've learned from went to film school, so I don't have anything bad to say about it. Per yeah, se. yeah. I just think that there's something that goes along. There's something that goes along with just like um, learning f- through experience. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's uh, kind of a street smart kind of thing. Where I'm not book smart, I'm street smart. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you need more of in the real world? Street smart. Yeah. One hundred percent. If I could be street smart or book smart, I'm pretty lucky that I'm street smart. Right. I'm definitely not book smart. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I mean, at least you read books. Um, uh, not, not that uh, I understand them. <laughs> uh, I just think that there's a there's a value in that. Uh, you know, figuring out for yourself. I would do the same thing that you would do. I would learn how to play songs. I would sit down with my guitar and just say, "Oh, that's the note. Oh, okay. And that's the note. Okay, cool." And by the end of the end of the night, I'd kind of figure it out. If I hadn't done that, learning to write a song would be much harder. Now, you know, you can go to school and kind of learn that, that same thing, but there's like a, a, a value in figuring things out for yourself yes. that school doesn't necessarily give you because it tells you, here's the answer. Well, what if I just want to not do that? What if I want to break that rule or whatever? Absolutely. Because there's only so much you can learn about running a mile before you just go out and run the mile. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You'll learn great, so much more. Great point. So what are we doing next week? So next week we're going to be doing Ex Machina. Yeah, It's buddy. by my favorite screenwriter who directed his first film, uh, Alex Garland. So I'm like stoked out of my mind. Have you already seen it? Yes. Okay, good. But I need to see it again before we actually review it. Heck yeah. You're like <laughs> so excited. We're going to watch Ex Machina again. <laughs> And anybody who says, you guys only two movies that you like, go back. There are a few that we don't. Right. Um, That's true. Uh, we did Transformers. We did Wonder Woman. Um, yeah. So, and you know what? Un- unless someone tells us, hey, we want to do this movie, we're just going to do the movies that we want to do. So, yeah. this is our podcast. my podcast. Yeah, boy. So, if you if you want to send us a note for one of those, that's yeah. fine. Do yeah. it. Do it. Just tell us tell us what you wanted us to do. What, the Peanuts movie? I've seen it 17 <laughs> times. Yeah, I got kids, and I've seen a damn Peanuts movie 17 times. So, what? Leave me alone. Unless you, unless you ask us to do Frozen. We are not oh, reviewing Frozen. We're probably going to get 10 requests to review Frozen now. Right. I'm not doing it. That's I do so not want to hear that woman singing anymore. I've only seen it once to once. Your, so like our ratio is one to like 7,000. Oh my gosh. It's there was a, there was a period there where I was, I was ma- massively depressed because 
Frozen was all that was playing in my house. So subscribe, leave us a review. Um, you can find all the show notes at thepestlepodcast.com slash thehatefulight, and eight is spelled out. All right, guys. Well, until next week where we're doing Ex Machina, thank you for listening. Uh, definitely review us. And uh, until next week, I'm Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.